in Everybody Writes, I tell the story of starting with a personal trainer and going to a gym for the first time and feeling like, you know, ridiculous in my spandex and feeling like I, I was lifting weights that were, you know, probably designed for like, you know, a spindly eight-year-old. But nonetheless, you know, I kept showing up three times a week. And over time, I eventually got stronger, I got better, and I felt less embarrassed. And I think it's the same way with writing. You know, the only way to get better at writing is simply to write. Um, every day, if you can, just make a commitment, just like I made a commitment to the gym. You are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Hello there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Louder Than Words, where I have the great fortune to hang out with some of the most brilliant people in business, entrepreneurship, writing, or any other creative field that you know. Today is certainly no exception. I'm hanging out with, hanging out with not just one of my favorite people probably in business, but just one of my favorite people in general, <laughs> and Anne Hanley. Uh, not only is she one of the most gracious people I've probably met in my business travels, she's also one of the most brilliant. Every analogy you've ever heard about great writers like, you know, my favorite one, I think, is that they could write the le- leather off of a shoe and fits those analogies. Uh, she's the chief content officer at Marketing Profs, um, the first ever, we think, and also the author of Content Rules and Everybody Writes, which is her newest. Um, you've probably seen her speak uh, at a marketing conference. She speaks globally all over the place talking about content and writing and all things related. And I'm so happy to finally get you on Louder Than Words. How's it going? I'm good. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for that very generous introduction. So even though you haven't been on here yet, I don't know if you've heard through the grapevines at all, but you've been talked about quite a bit on this <laughs> podcast. So we've had people like Damian Farnworth from Copy Blogger and CC Chapman, people that are good friends of yours. And for one, you know, for one reason or another, we always, Ann Hanley always comes up and mm. everybody writes comes up or your emails come up, something comes up and we've waxed poetic about Ann Hanley's writing ability for many. I even had somebody tweet at me last week that said they went and bought everybody writes off Amazon just from what they heard. Um, on, on louder than words. So I'm like, we really talk about Ann a lot, don't we? Wow. Well, so, thank you for that. Again, it's like double thank you for that generosity. That's awesome. We have a love affair with Ann Hanley on this podcast. <laughs> we, we talk about your writing ability quite a bit. So even though you haven't been on here yet, your presence has definitely been felt. It's so, like I have been on there, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So before we go into, you know, all the specifics, um, can you tell us a little bit about you and, and where you're from and, you know, what your favorite song is, you know, the basics like that. <laughs> Sure. So, um, yes. So I'm Ann Hanley. I, uh, I am the world's first chief content officer. As far as I know, I have had that title since my click Z days, um, back in gosh, 1999, something ancient like that. Um, so before I was in digital marketing, I was a journalist and a writer. I wrote for the Boston globe. I write, I wrote for tons of uh, business to business publications. I wrote for the magazines that you get in the back of airline pockets. I wrote for anything essentially. Um, and then when the internet happened, I co-founded a company called clickz.com, which was one of the first sources of information on how to market online. Sold that in 2000 and joined Marketing Pros in 2002, um, which is makes it 
essentially the longest job that I've ever had, which is kind of incredible. Um, I've written a couple of books, as you said, and um, let's see, what else? I have a couple of children. I have a dog at my feet right now, and right now I'm talking to you from my tiny house, which serves as my office in my backyard. You forgot your favorite song, though. Oh, man, my favorite song. Hmm. Or at least right now. You must have something stuck in your head, right? Yeah, well, anything by Lyle Lovett. I really love Lyle Lovett. Um, Lately, I've been listening to a lot of Ed Sheeran, um, and I heard this recording that I've never heard on one of his CDs, actually, but it's called The Parting Glass. So I don't know if you've ever heard that song, but it's a lovely old Scottish ballad, I think, and he does a fantastic cover of it. There you go. Add that to your playlist, everyone. Um, so yeah, you, you talked about how you've, you've written in so many different contexts. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? So when I was eight years old, um, I started a newsletter in my neighborhood. And this was you know pre-email, of course. So I used to um, write it up by hand and then copy it on my dad's um, Xerox machine at his office and then distribute it to my neighbors on my bike in their mailboxes. So that was a pretty clear indication that I, that I had a career in publishing ahead of me. But, you know, from the time that I was that age, I, I mean, I wrote in my diary when I grow up, I want to be a writer and I, I wrote it with two T's. <laughs> so obviously back then I needed an editor as well who could help me with, um, <laughs> with spelling. But, um, but yeah, I've always wanted to be a writer pretty much as, as long as, or as long as I could write and, and read, I've always wanted to be a writer. So what was your unsubscribe rate on those, you know, going direct mail in everybody's inboxes? Did you get any angry neighbors? No, are you kidding? No, <laughs> actually, it was uh, it was kind of a fantastic first experience. So I wrote about all kinds of things, you know, the the time that the trash guy came down the street and everybody thought it was too early in the morning. So I wrote about that. Um, I wrote about a neighbor's dog and about why he was allowed to wander around the streets of the neighborhood when, you know, I just, I had strong feelings about that. So there was a little, a lot of editorializing in this publication. Um, but no, it, it, as far as I know, it had pretty much a hundred percent retention rate on that. So, (laughs) so, so it's one thing to, to write right at that age, but how did, how did you get good at it? You know, a lot of people that are in any creative field, um, are always constantly trying to improve or get better. Writing is just one of those things. It's sort of like math. You hear somebody, I just, I I don't write. I can't write. Mm Um, and I mean, your, your, your most recent book, Everybody Writes, obviously kind of debunks that sort of thinking, but how does, how does one get good at writing? You know, the only key to getting better at writing is, really to write, you know, which sounds hopelessly simple, but it's completely true. Um, the only way to get better is to practice. In, the, in Everybody Writes, I tell the story of starting with a personal trainer and going to a gym for the first time and feeling like, you know, ridiculous in my spandex and feeling like I, I was lifting weights that were, you know, probably designed for like, you know, a spindly eight-year-old. But Nonetheless, you know, I kept showing up three times a week and over time I eventually got stronger, I got better and I felt less embarrassed. And I think it's the same way with writing. You know, the only way to get better at writing is simply to write. Um, Every day, if you can, just make a commitment just like I made a commitment to the gym. I mean, certainly reading good writing is also one way to learn, but I really do think that you've got to, you've got to do it. You know, you've just got to make a commitment. I'm going to be a better writer and sit down and write with some sort of discipline. And it's not easy, right? Because you have, I think, the single greatest analogy on writing that you actually use. I believe it's in the introduction of Everybody Writes um, that involves a Volkswagen. 
<laughs> Can you talk about that analogy? And, you know, because a lot of people are going to relate to this, like your own sort of give and take and push and pull as it relates to writing and, and just, you know, being able to write every day. <laughs> right. So the analogy in the book, I say, is it's, it is like birthing a Volkswagen. But <laughs> that was specifically about writing a book. I mean, writing a book about writing is actually a lot harder than I anticipated that it was going to be. Um, because I thought, you know, when, when I sat down to write Everybody Writes, I mean, my original idea behind it was that, you know, there's so many books about writing on there, you know, Stephen King's On Writing, um, The Elements of Style by E.B. White, you know, all fantastic books. I, I love them all, plus more, you know, Elmore Leonard's, um, what, 10 Rules of Writing, something like that. So many great books about writing, but so many of them are framed for, writers or, or fiction writers or, or essayists or journalists or that kind of thing. I really wanted to write something that was geared more toward uh, business professionals, content marketers, and communicators. And um, so people who write emails, you know, on behalf of their companies or just even, you know, who are, who are trying to convey a message internally. Um, so to salespeople who have to craft um, sales letters, you know, things like that. So I really wanted to put something together that would be super useful for that crowd. Um, but you know, that's a really hard thing to do. So that's where that, you know, <laughs> that's where that giving birth to a Volkswagen analogy comes into play. Um, but, um, now I completely lost track. What was your question originally? <laughs> <laughs> so this actually, this is perfect because I was, this, what I was getting at was that it's, it's, I mean, even for me and you know, you might have these superhuman writing powers, so maybe you don't go through this, but any little distraction is, like welcomed when I'm in the midst of writing. Dog needs oh, to go yeah. out. Perfect. Yeah. Um, laundry's done. Perfect. You know, I think I'm a little thirsty. Uh, like, you know, <laughs> we all get distracted and, um, you know, I think it's just part of the gig, right? Of writing. So I guess you, what, what is your own relationship like with writing when you're writing for your blog? Um, I know you publish in, in several other areas as well. What does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I procrastinate as much as anybody else, really. Um, but ultimately, what saves me always is is just, you know, a work ethic, right? It's like, I know that I have to put something out there. And so I ultimately will. But that doesn't mean that just like you said, you know, I, I'll do the same thing, you know, I'll, I'll decide to make something super complicated for dinner, I'll decide that, you know, I should really just uh, go out and clean the car, and then I should vacuum it. And then I should, you know, wash the windows. It's like, it's that kind of thing constantly. So I think that pressure, that tension always exists between the creator and, you know, it's, it's easier to distract yourself than it is to actually, you know, sit down and create. Um, but I don't think it's specific to writers, actually. I think it's specific to a lot of people. Um, my son is a, is a sculptor. He's an artist. And, and he says the same thing, you know, as much as he loves art and he loves making art, it's always easier just to not do it, right? <laughs> it's always easier to just do something else because it's hard. Um, and I actually, I think what it is, it's, it's, it's because it forces you to really communicate in a way that you have to crystallize what you're trying to say and then figure out how you will be understood. And I don't think that that's an easy thing to do. I mean, I think we can, we can say, um, or, or we can use words to say what it is that we want to say, but when you're thinking about how do I actually say this so that an audience understands and that it really does convey the depth and the clarity of, of what I'm trying to convey. I think that's hard. I just think that the process is, is really hard. 
and for any creator really and and you, and you kind right. of touch on that and i think it's like the the analogy that i always use and tell people is like i enjoy writing i do but i love having written yeah exactly you know, i love looking back and being like i wrote but the actual process of sitting down can sometimes be a little bit intimidating and um and and i know you mentioned click z earlier mm-hmm. and really click z and and yourself, you were, you kind of like were one of the pioneers of this online content in the marketing space, like educating business people, educating marketers. Um, tell us what, you know, what did you see at that time? Like, tell us about your experience, um, at ClickZ and, and how that shaped really, like what, you know, first of all, what you saw at the time that you knew this was going to be important and how that shaped really everything else going forward for you. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say that I, I, you know, was just, I was incredibly prescient, but the reality is, you know, I mean, I, I was more, I was more just, just sort of blown away by this thing called the internet back then. Right. It was like, wow, you know, this is just such an amazing tool to communicate with so many people. And what I really loved about it is the way that it sort of democratized publishing. You know, as I mentioned, when I was eight years old and I was, you know, creating newsletters to send to the people in my neighborhood or to deliver to the people in my neighborhood, it would have been really hard to scale that, right? (laughs) And so what I, I eventually did was I went into newspapers and magazines, but there was always that gatekeeper, right? And so what really struck me way back in 1996 when I when I first saw the internet and, and saw the potential that existed there for publishing. Remember, this was before email marketing even became a thing, right? Sure. So um, so what I really saw there was the ability to, you know, for anybody to just reach an audience in ways that they just couldn't do before. And that's something that we, we more or less take for granted now because, you know, you could go out this afternoon and launch a blog and, and, um, and be on Twitter and be on Facebook and be on LinkedIn and have all these other channels. But way back then, you know, the world just felt so much more insulated and it was so much harder to, you know, you, you could, that, none of that stuff even existed. So you couldn't even think about creating audiences unless you had, you know, the, unless you had a distribution process in place through like a printer and, and, a, and a lot of money to, to then do that and then reach an audience. But the fact that the internet came along and sort of just, you know, democratized that process, that to me was really the thing that blew me away the most. Um, and that's when, you know, at the time my then business partner and I thought that, you know, what we should do, we should really help businesses figure out how do would they use this. Um, and at first, you know, that meant, banner ads. Essentially, we wrote a lot about, you know, how to make sure that every last pixel of, of your banner ad is downloaded. You know, we wrote, a, we wrote about ad networks and things that were cutting edge at the time. Um, eventually, we started writing about things like email marketing and one-to-one marketing was a big thing back then. Um, and it wouldn't be for, you know, until, af- until I was after I was at Marketing Profs that we started writing about things like social networks and content um, at a whole different level. So then, of course, things just exploded. But, you know, way back then, it really was the capacity to start to build an audience that an individual could start to build an audience. I just thought that was amazing. And I still do, honestly. Yeah. And you've seen this, this ridiculous evolution take place since those times. Yeah. So, you know, blogging, just, just the, I mean, people take that for granted now, but just the simple act of blogging, having, yes. having your own space in your own backyard to, to put out whatever it is you want. Um, yeah. Like you said, sort of democratizes the, you know, the web. You don't have to be in a big publication to get exposure. But then social media, and now you have this like live element, live streaming. So yeah. when you when you see all these things taking place, um, <laughs> I mean, what what goes to your mind? You were there at such an early stage, um, and now you have all these distribution methods in place. I mean, 
uh, does that make it easy or harder for people to really develop an audience right now? Because it's almost like there's so much noise that it's you would think it'd be harder. But at the same time, there's so many tools available to you that it's uh, could also be a, a really good opportunity. What, I mean, what is your what are your thoughts on you know the amount of opportunities that people have, and is that good or bad? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both, but I I still think that businesses truly aren't taking advantage of it. Um, you know, last week I spoke at an event down in Austin, Texas called Spice World. It's a fantastic event, by the way. Um, put Spice on by World. <laughs> yeah, put on by a company called Spice Works. So it's a technology marketing and and uh, an IT pro conference. And um, and you know, one of the things that I talked about there, and I still believe that this was true 10 years ago, you know, when we first started talking about, um, you know, how to use the, or 15 years ago, we first started talking about the internet and 10 years ago when we started talking about blogging, but, you know, the capacity to communicate directly with an audience, you know, from a business perspective, I mean, especially, I mean, that's tremendous, isn't it? It's like, I still feel blown away by that. And I still think that businesses don't fully embrace that opportunity. It's a huge opportunity. So, Rather than just, you know, taking their old broadcast, you know, um, programs and, and taking their old ad-based models and then cramming them into a, a content construct, you know, what I think is more valuable is when you really do think, you know, how do we, how do we create a content strategy that's going to engage the audience that we're trying to reach? So many companies just kind of miss that. You know, they go straight for just taking their old stuff that they've always done and cramming it into these new models. And I just think that's not going to work. You're going to set yourself up for failure. So, you know, ironically, yes, there's lots of opportunity out there, but so many companies I don't think are truly embracing that still. It's it's crazy to even think that. And that was like, kind of leads into my next question, which is like, you know, content marketing and blogging and writing and, and all this, you know, digital publishing. I feel like we're at this stage where it's like most companies or, or maybe that's a stretch. Many companies are are doing it. They're publishing in some form, but are they... And are we that much better off for it? Um, granted, there are a lot of companies like HubSpot, Copyblogger. There's many others that mm-hmm. have primarily gotten a lot of exposure through putting out great content and having mm-hmm. great publications. But you know, from like you know the main business, you know, main businesses, many businesses, are we all better off for everybody publishing all this content? I mean. Are we reaching this sort of tipping point where it's like there needs to be a, and this sounds cheesy, like a content marketing 2.0 where it's like it's not just the act of putting it out there and writing anymore. It's It needs to be more than that. Oh, I mean, I don't think it ever was, really. I don't think it was ever just about that. Um, you know, I, I think it's more about being clear on who your audience is, right, <laughs> who you're trying to reach, who you are, and then the best way to communicate with them. I mean, certainly it's not just about, you know, I, I think we're way past this idea of, you know, you know, if you write it, they will come. I think, I think if that ever existed, and again, I'm not even sure that it ever did, but, um, but now I think it's much more about, you know, using the proper distribution channels to engage with those audiences, not just reach, but truly engage with them. Um, and secondly, you know, being a whole lot braver and bolder with what you're putting out there. The theme of what I've been talking about lately is is bigger, bolder, braver, you know, really thinking about those three attributes of for any content you're putting out there. So creating not just, you know, stuff that maybe you've always created as part of your marketing, but really thinking through at a, at a different, deeper level, you know, but what is it that we're trying to do here? Answering that why question, you know, what is it that we're trying to do? What's the strategy behind this? And then really finding the right channels. 
Um, so yes, I mean, I do think that we live in a world where, you know, it, it's, it's really, there's the, the, there's pressure on all of us to create content, to connect with audiences because there really is no other option. I mean, I don't think you can just throw tons of money at it anymore. I think you've got to be a whole lot smarter about how it is that you're marketing your own business. Can somebody still, you know, pull a, uh, a Marcus Sheridan, you know, the sales lion nowadays where, you know, very little money at the time where he, you know, for those not familiar, we actually had him on this podcast. Um, but, you know, his company was, you know, in the you know, very early stages um, or late stages, really, of going under in 2008 when the market collapsed. He had a pool company, mm-hmm. went home and he spent a lot of his nights blogging, answering the questions of his most common questions of his customers, which goes back to you said, like understanding the audience and putting it in places where they found it. Is that kind of thing still possible now where people can, with very little budget, just put out content and have it be discovered and make a huge business impact? Or do you have to have the budget to be able to push it out on an outbrain or social media or display advertising? Is, is blogging in and of itself with very little budget have you seen that still working for a lot of companies? I, you know, I still think it's possible, but I do think that you have to think through the distribution piece of it. I don't necessarily think it's about a bigger budget, but I do think it's about being smarter. Um, I do think it's still possible to reach an audience, to start to build audience if you if you do those three things that I mentioned, if you tell a bigger story, you know, if you're braver and bolder with your marketing, I still think all of that is possible. Um, but I also think that it doesn't mean that you just, you know, sort of put up a blog and sit back and wait. I mean, you've got to actively engage, right? You've actually got to, got to, um, be on social media, which isn't necessarily going to cost you a lot of money, but it certainly has, uh, uh, you know, some, some sunk costs in terms of, you know, time and, and resources, right? So I still think it's possible to, to build an audience to, to have that kind of, of business impact, if you will. But, you know, certainly, um, it's, it's definitely, it's harder now. So it's funny that you mentioned Marcus, because last week I was talking to, um, to this guy, uh, Steve Scheinkopf, who is the CEO of, a of an appliance company here in Boston, who's a good friend of Marcus's too. And Marcus actually had introduced us, which is, which is why I even know Steve. And I asked him this question. So Steve runs an appliance company called Yale Appliance, um, just outside of, of Boston. He just opened a new showroom, um, in Framingham, which is, which is, just a little bit further outside the city after being in the city for many, many years. So Yale Appliance was founded by his grandfather. So he's a third generation to run this appliance company. Um, and essentially the way Steve has rescued his company from, you know, from, from some, some dark days is, uh, is through having a content strategy, you know, so it's not just the blog that he has, but the blog is a significant part of what he does. Um, and I asked him this question, the very question that, that you asked me, cause it's something that, you know, I, I certainly think about as well. Um, so I asked him, you know, do you, does, was it just a first mover advantage? You know, were you the first person in the appliance industry to have a blog that, you know, that that really put out some straight talk about about appliance buying and kitchen renovations and that kind of thing? Um, and his his comment back to me was was that you know good original information is still good original information and good content will always win out. Um, and he described himself as not being an outlier. He said there are millions and millions of industries and, and countless opportunities in underserved markets. And I agree with him. I mean, I still think that's true. There are certainly areas where content is more saturated. You know, agencies, I think, would be one area. Content marketing <laughs> services is certainly another one. Um, <laughs> sure. But I think it's, you know, it's key there to 
to really think about, you know, again, the audience you're trying to reach and, and telling a bigger story with bolder and braver content. I think all of those things, there's no magic formula, but I still think that if that, that good content does win out, the good content is always going to be sought after by people who need information. So I want to get a little more personal here into your process for writing. So very, really simple question. When it comes to writing, for you, mm-hmm. is it easy? Uh, no, it's very hard, actually. <laughs> I, 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 um, I, I mean, I, as I mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, I'll spend a lot of time procrastinating before I'll actually sit down to write. Um, but at the same time, I almost, I'm almost compelled to do it, you know, and, I, and if something really gets under my skin, I can't ignore it and I just have to write. You know, that's just the way that, um, that's just the way that I work. It's the way that my brain works. And so it's almost like there's part of me who just is not going to let go until I finally sit down and, and write about something that's, that's really taken hold of me. So I guess the two things are, it's hard to write when I'm not particularly fired up or engaged in the subject. And certainly I have to do that all the time. Um, but secondly, even when I am, you know, fired up and engaged and I know that I have to do something, I will still procrastinate. Um, so very often the way that I get past that is just by, um, and this is actually something that I talk about in Everybody Writes too, I just make a simple list. I just make like almost a grocery list of my key point, typically the main thing I'm trying to get across. And then I make a list underneath it of just the key points that I want to make, just like you might make a grocery list that had like, you know, milk and egg and cheese and pork chops or whatever. Um, I would do the same thing only, you know, making the, each one of those things would be just a key point that I'm trying to make in the article. And that really becomes the scaffolding on which I hang the entire piece. How many drafts do you go through before, you know, what we see is completed? Oh man, I'm a hopeless tweaker. So, um, I hardly ever publish and, or write and publish on the same day. Typically I'll do a first draft on one day. I'll spend a day polishing and then I'll publish on the third day. In between there though, I'll send it to my editor. I I rarely will publish anything that isn't, that, that doesn't go through him. And I've worked with him for years. Um, and he sort of, you know, understands the nuances of what I'm trying to say. So, um, so that having that role is really key for me. He's the guy who will like, you know, send me back something that says, I'm not sure exactly what you're trying to say here. And if he doesn't understand it, then I pretty much know that my audience won't understand it either. So I guess bottom line, you're probably looking at maybe four or five drafts. Um, but you know, I've, I'm not a fast writer. I've never been somebody who can just dash off a blog post in 45 minutes. I'm incredibly jealous of anybody who can do that. Um, but I've learned to forgive myself for it because it's just not the way that I'm. It's not the way that I'm wired. Well, most times it, when it's done that quickly, it's not done well. So yeah, uh, I mean, there, there, surely there's exceptions for everything. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think that the the general commonalities that you see among you know many great writers is it doesn't. It's not quick. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a process. Right. Um, and you know, it's also it, for, for me at least, it's one of those things where I need inspiration. Like, uh, so, so for me, just as an example, I subscribe to Dollar Shave Club and they give you these little pamphlets every time you get a new box every month or every two months, whatever your subscription is. And the con, the copy is just always so great. And so a lot of times I'll save these and leave them on my desk and mm-hmm. this will inspire me the next time I'm writing uh, copy for a landing page or mm-hmm. uh, maybe an email that's going out. So for you personally, where do you extract inspiration from? Yeah, that's, a, I mean, that's a really good point. I do the same thing. Um, 
I read The New Yorker mostly to see the way that they put articles together. I mean, The New Yorker, first of all, is like fantastic writing, right, <laughs> in this in that magazine. Um, and a lot of the articles are super dense and super detailed. But a lot of times when I'm when I'm reading something like that, and, and this actually goes for emails too, like you mentioned Dollar Shave Club. I do the same thing with a couple of of emails that that email list that I'm on too. Um, but I'm just on them not necessarily because I'm a target customer, but just because I like the way that they're communicating. And I'm always thinking about, you know, how is it that they put this together? And that's interesting, the way that they, you know, didn't really talk much about that point until the third or fourth paragraph. Um, Almost anything that I read, I'm sort of reading on that level. And I think as you become a more experienced writer, you that that's a, a different way of learning by reading. So you're not just reading for the story, but you're reading f- to get a sense of why is it that this is engaging me so much or is this working or is this not? Um, so I do stuff like that all the time. So New Yorker would definitely be one source that I read regularly. Um, I also love brain pickings. I don't know if you know that um, the publication by Maria um, Papova, I mentioned her and everybody writes, but she's also, Sorry, yeah, she's one of my favorite. Um, the, her, I mean, the newsletter and the site are just um, two of my two of my favorite things. Tons of inspiration in there as well. In part because she's talking about um, you know creative arts and and writing and painting and things that I care about. But also it's just like the way that she she crafts her um, her her email newsletters. I think is really interesting. Even though they're incredibly long and sort of run counter to pretty much any best practice that you ever see in email um, in email marketing. But I think it's really fantastic. So those are two sources. Um, what else? So you mentioned the New Yorker. Are you still like a physical media? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. A, like are you like me where I still have to buy the books? I, I can't really get into the e-reader Kindle thing. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah, I, 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 I like having the physical book or magazine in my hand. Um, it's just It just feels better to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, how, what kinds of things do you do? Like I was going to ask you like – what kinds of things do you do to, to stay productive and like what does your desk space look like? But you mentioned earlier you have this little tiny house. So <laughs> for everybody who doesn't know, like what, t- tell us about this tiny house and why this, <laughs> why this space is, is important to you and, and why you built it. Right. So Marketing Process is a virtual company. I've worked out of my house for, geez, since 2000, so 15 years now. Um, and it wasn't until about two years ago that I started looking at this little tool shed in the backyard and thinking, you know, I think that there's a better a better use for that little tool shed that has like, you know, a lawnmower inside of it and a couple of rakes. So um, so I tore down the tool shed and built this little tiny house in its place. And what it is essentially is um, it's really more of a a work shed. One of my friends called it a she shed, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's four walls and it has a little four foot screen in porch on the front of it. Um, very simple construction, you know, the it's unfinished inside just because I sort of like that as an analogy. Um, and it's just a really comfortable place and it's it's all mine it's set apart from the house so i literally have to commute here you know i have to walk 100 feet across the yard just to get here um and there's something kind of uh i don't know there's something kind of like magical about her or or sacred maybe i mean that sounds kind of goofy saying that but um but it's true because when i'm in here it's it's a dedicated space and i can get so much more done in here than I can when I'm just working at any other random place in the house, including my my office upstairs. 
Um, and I don't know why that is. I don't know whether it's just because there are no distractions in here. Like I literally cannot throw in a load of laundry, for example, or, you know, I can't talk to anybody who happens to be wandering through the room. Um, but I don't think it's just that. I actually think that it's, it's, there is like a, a mindset to being in here too, that I just think of this as a place where I just like get stuff done and I get stuff done in here. So if I end up, you know, trying to, to build my own someday. I'll finish, so I'll have a, a, a he shed. Yes. So exactly. it'll be you would, he you would. shed, she shed. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, um, yeah, I think the she shed is like the answer <laughs> to like a man cave. Maybe I think that's what it is. But. Yeah. Yeah. We already have. Yeah. yeah that's true. I, I love that name. <laughs> um, so are you uh, to wrap up? I always like to wrap up on this very lighthearted question, but I think there's a lot you can tell by somebody by what they have on their home screen by their phones. Right. I think we've reached that level, uh, mm-hmm. as, as a society for good or bad. So are you an iPhone, Android? What, what, what kind of phone do you use? Uh, iPhone. What uh, what apps do you have like on your home screen that you use frequently? So right now on my home screen, I have in addition to all the normal ones. Are, are there? There's just some default apps that are on there. Isn't yeah, yeah. There's yeah. There's quite a few of those that you can move around. Those those are a little annoying. Right, like the weather and the yeah. things like that, and the App Store app is on there. I've never moved them off, so there's that. Um, but right now, my home screen is uh, is Instagram and Snapchat. Snapchat because my daughter is in London for the semester, and so that's that's basically become my parenting tool for uh, for talking <laughs> to her. And um, Facebook and Twitter. That's what I have on there right now. All right, pretty standard. All the social apps are covered. And um, indeed. Oh, and actually, just a new one that I just downloaded is Overcast. I just noticed that. I just picked it up on here. Um, because my friend, Dane Sanders, who actually is somebody that you should talk to for this show as, as well, um, he told me about this podcast listening app called Overcast. You, you must know it. Do you know yep, it? Yep. Yeah. So anyway, it was brand new to me, and I just love this app. There's just so many cool little features about it. So um, so that's my new thing. So I, it used to be that when I would go for a walk, I would use that time to very often do like conference calls and that kind of thing. Now I've been using it to listen to podcasts. So this is like, I know, I know the rest of the world get into podcasts like what, two or three years ago, but you know, I'm a little bit behind the curve on this one. So <laughs> I'm just getting into it now. So, so overcast is my new, it was, it was niche. It was niche until, until really like, I think podcasting in a few years will be known as like, um, you know, there'll be BS and AS before serial and after serial. So. Yeah. Yeah, right, uh, right. I think really that's how we'll classify it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so last question: Who's somebody that really has taught you more about? I mean, it could be life or your profession than anybody else. Mm, who's somebody who's taught me more? Um, I mean, you know, honestly, my parents have been my my biggest influence in my life. My dad, uh, for his work ethic in particular. I mean, he was probably one of the hardest working guys that I knew. Um, and he's no longer with us. And so I still think that's true. Um, but, um, but my parents both, I mean, they've always been my biggest champions and, you know, they were the ones who were, you know, my dad taking my newsletter to his office and copying it on the Xerox machine and, and my mom, like not laughing at me when I would like get on my bike and ride around the neighborhood. Like to me, it just seemed totally normal. Like that's one way that kids play. And no, I never felt like that that was a weird thing, even though like on some level, I kind of want to mock myself for stuff like that, you know? So (laughs) that's just a small example. There were so many other things like that, that I did, you know, like, um, at one point I had, 
I had pen pals from all over the world because it was a way to build audiences. And when I think about it now, it was like, you know, a way to build audiences and communicate because it just wasn't enough for me to have one pen pal. I had to have like 10 and just like stuff like that, that they just sort of, you know, indulged is the wrong word. They just, they just were like, made me feel like that was a completely normal way to be, even though I was probably kind of a weird kid. So those are, those are the two that, I mean, my, my parents just for sure were just the people who um, really have taught me so much about being a parent and just about supporting your kid, no matter what they're into and where they're at. That's a great answer. You can never go wrong with your parents. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming on. This was so much fun. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So glad to finally get you on here. And, um, you know, we're not just talking about you now. We've actually had you on. So this, (laughs) this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Anne. Great. Thank you. And to everyone else, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Be sure to subscribe, like, share, all those great things. And be sure to tune in next time because we'll have more more great guests. So long, everyone.